This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontier, show number 36, recorded on June 27th, 2017. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future from an academic perspective. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the Average Guy.tv studios here in Bellevue, Nebraska. And of course, we post a show with world class show notes each week out at the Average Guy.tv. We want to welcome you back. We have published a podcast since February of, uh, of this year. And of course, uh, good to be back with you. Glad, glad we stayed in your channel and glad that uh, you're listening to us either live. I got a bunch of you listening live out there right now, or listening. This is showing up in your podcast app, and uh, thanks for keeping it subscribed uh, each week here. If you have questions or comments, you can always send us an email. So you can send that to me, Jim at theaverageguy.tv, or find me on Twitter at Jay Collison. Then don't forget everything over at theaverageguy.tv. Of course, powered, awesomely powered, quickly powered by Maple Grove Partners. Get secure, reliable, high speed hosting from people that you know. Literally, you're looking at them and trust. For more information, visit maplegrovepartners.com. Plans start as little as $10 a month. They can grow upwards as well. If you've got bigger demands and bigger needs, there's all kinds of great stuff they can do. Great community host provider, and we thank Maple Grove Partners for all they do as they host uh, theaverageguy.tv. And Christian, thanks for that. Uh, what you do as well out there. Christian's back. He's no longer an academic in academia, well, at least for now, he says. Christian, welcome back to Cyber Frontiers. Thanks, Jim. It's good to be back and uh, interesting to be back in this role of a postgraduate in a show that we originally sought out to always have an academic flair and perspective. So I think we're going to keep that a part of our vibe here just so we can all feel like we're students still learning in some capacity because it just seems boring if we're not students learning, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. That and maybe that's the Right. Maybe the angle we take is that we're always learning. We're always growing. I know I learn a ton. This one in particular, because I really just listen to you. I turn it over to you and then you go. It's a great learning experience. So we'll keep we'll keep it in there just because we're going to always learn and grow. Yeah. So, no, it's it's really awesome. And uh, also appreciative to everyone who kind of stayed on a roll and stayed subscribed. I know we've had a uh, what we would call an inconsistent publishing schedule. Um, but I'm looking forward to be able to do this more consistently now and uh, start tracking some of the big headline items and also get back into some of our uh, experiments and projects that we wanted to do for uh, all the self-learning that we're after. Yeah. So, yeah, very cool. Well, we would uh, we would be remiss if we did not dive right in and start talking about all the stuff that's going on with ransomware. By the way, let me just tease this out. We'll catch up with you a little bit what's been going on since February. Sure. We'll sure. do that later on in the show, but uh, a lot of folks are, are tuning in. Of course, it's been in the news for the last couple of weeks, and ransomware has become, I think, has kind of outstripped this uh, the the idea of getting viruses. Like, I mean, it's I know it's kind of the yeah. same thing, but people aren't worried about viruses anymore. This ransomware stuff's the real deal. I mean, people are really losing money now, and it's it's pretty in interesting. Can you kind of, Christian, kind of bring us up to speed on what's going on? Well, it's really funny, too, because you, you essentially know that ransomware is really becoming important when we get to the point that essentially all these, you know, the things that used to be your antivirus now have the built-in ransomware protection. And they're really specifically making call-outs because it's starting to escalate to that point, right? So it's intriguing that I think the public sees ransomware as somehow different from a virus when in reality, um, the the only distinctions I make are, is it a virus or is it a worm? And the only two differences there are really whether or not the speed and velocity and, and the way in which that foreign malicious code ends up getting on, on target machines. So um, ransomware is really what I call a subset of a given virus. And it is certainly dominated. I mean, it is like, it is, there's an analogy here of it wasn't sexy to call it information security. So we called it cybersecurity. Now it's super sexy. And somehow um, virus authors have managed to take virus, which has started to become a flat word and put some really great 
I don't know who coined ransomware originally. That's um, a knowledgeable lookup for folks to check into today. But um, it really is dubbed appropriately, number one. Um, but number two, it's kind of very catchy. I think people hear ransomware and it's almost like they understand it better than when I say to someone, you have a virus. If I say, oh, this looks like ransomware, they know what that means. They know um, what it means to be taken ransom or to be held ransom or to be or have goods ransomed. So there's that terminology. And I think where sounds enough like software that they know it's digital and it's out there to get them. So it was good coining on the on the industry's part um christian let me let me interrupt for sure, one. sure so when we think about the average guy and and now the threat is real i mean before it would it might erase some some stuff that we can get from but now it's encrypting these files in most cases and it's holding you hostage until you pay via bitcoin right is it enough for the average guy you know i've got my files backed up they're versioned in their backup and so if something were to happen to me i've got a copy of everything as it was yesterday and the day before and the day before that monthly and some other things in my backups is that a from from and, and you just mentioned it uh, antivirus um companies now are are making their software supposed to address this but is it enough just to make sure we're backed up in the cloud and it's a true backup it's not a sync it's a backup with versioning is that good enough for the average? I mean, wh what's the footing we need to be on right now to make sure we're we're in a good place just besides, you know, buying antivirus software? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point, right? So obviously the folks who are at the worst position once they've been infected is the folks who don't have a backup, right? So certainly you're a little bit ahead of the curve if you end up with ransomware, but you have a backup, right? Because then in theory, you don't have to pay a fine, right? So if your backups are current, you're not going to pay that fine. What's disconcerting to me and where there is a lack of data is how have attackers or ransomware authors been using the data that is encrypted and collected, right? So um, it's unclear to me at this point if... They're really looking for that. I think there's the number one, there's this fast profit motive, right? It's very inexpensive and cheap for them to run the botnets that are going to be responsible for decrypting your information and holding the key, et cetera. What I haven't studied yet is are there any specific cases of ransomware where the command and control node is actually exfiltrating the data that was encrypted, right? So one of the reasons why this technique works so well is because attackers can essentially pick a random private key that only they know, they encrypt your data regardless of the size on your local machine, and then the only way you're going to reverse that damage is to get that private key back. Now, what I don't know is that additional step of exfiltration, whether or not that's occurring, meaning are there data points where once the ransomware has been deployed, it's now at the attacker's leisure to kind of call through that data and start pulling back pieces of the data that's encrypted because they can decrypt it, right? Or they can get access to the raw payload if they want. So it's, it's one of those things for me where I don't see at this point the motive, like from a, from a cyber psychology standpoint, the motive is fast cash, get out quick, um, high volume of targets. You only need to get a very low percentage of return in order to make a profit, right? Um, I don't know if attackers are actually spending the time to then exfiltrate that data and do things like, did I collect information like your bank account password? Like that's that type of um, reaction is something that would be a much more manual process. I think it's much harder for them to write malware that does things like scan for bank passwords or scan, you know, there's certain things they could like, for example, um, I think about all the people who are using Outlook or other mail clients and they're downloading all that email locally to their desktop in an Outlook file or whatever, you know, so now you have your email and that data locally. So it's like, they don't even really need access to your email account to do other things. They might be able to infer or learn about what accounts you have out on the internet. And then if they get lucky with a password, you know, be able to do further damage. But that to me seems much more like a, if someone is infected by ransomware, 
either by manual means or otherwise, like there's a lot more manual targeting that's going to be involved for the attacker to try and do something like that. I think by and large, if you're one of the folks who aren't um, impacted in the sense that, okay, I have a backup, I don't need to pay this. um, I think chances are the average guy, you're probably okay in not having to worry about like, oh, my data is actually in the hands of someone else. But like, if it were me, I wouldn't make that assumption, right? Because I don't have the data point to make that assertion. So I would be changing passwords, updating it. You know, I would be doing all the usual things as if I had just gotten like my email compromised, right? Like I would treat it that way, even if the chances of that happening are probably pretty low. And, and I would be smart to encrypt like, so let's just say my tax returns, because those, they can do some serious damage with that tax return information of being able to file if they have last year's taxes or some things they can get access to. Am I smart to put that in an encrypted state first? Because then they would, sure, they could encrypt it and hold it for right. ransom, right. but they're encrypting an encrypted file. So is that another exactly. step I should be taking to make sure my really important documents are, are also having my own encryption on? Yeah, absolutely. Encryption of sensitive files on the hard drive itself is kind of a great preventative measure, even if we're not talking about ransomware. Um, It certainly helps with a lot of the cases, even whether, you know, when dealing with a physical access issue or some type of network or internet attack, um, having files that are inherently encrypted with like just really standard encryption algorithms, right? Like some people get really excited about the key length size and all this, but like if you're using like AES-256 and you're using a a CBC protocol and um, like you're encrypting those important data sets, right? I I really don't think an attacker is going to care too much about pictures. They're not going to care about videos. Like they're doing that to try and lure you for sentimental value. They're not doing it because they think they're going to mine some type of information about you out of it. So if you're doing things like encrypting your local financial records, or um, if you're going to store passwords in a file, are you encrypting that file? What are your mechanisms for like storing and remembering your password? Right. Because eventually it's like, if I store my master password to that encryption data store, is it really encrypted? My estimation is no, it's not, right? That's like a pretty simple proof we could draw out. But, you know, coming up with methods to basically memorize your master key to decrypt your own files, you're absolutely right. If they're encrypting stuff that's already encrypted, um, you're limiting the ability for them to do this secondary thing that I'm talking about. But I haven't really read any reports based on any of the strains of ransomware that have come out in the last six months that suggest this is happening. I'm just basically calling out the fact that it is a reality and it's possible. Um, and so one of the actually really cool things um, that's out on the interwebs is a site called, I believe it's called payload. Yeah, there we go. Payload-security.com. This is a website that does um, automated malware analysis. And basically they're getting live samples in real time of um, malware from all over the globe. So the specific payload-security.com is the company that runs this service, but the actual site that has all the data sets are hybrid-analysis.com. And if you drop over that submissions menu or look at any of the recent um, materials that have been uploaded to this website, you can get like a a snapshot sense of what are the types of binaries and malware that's like humming around the internet, going around the internet. And so like, I just dropped a link in the chat too on here's what the latest submissions are to this. And what this essentially does is they spin up a virtual machine. They run the payload that's submitted and they collect a bunch of cool metrics about what exactly the, um, the uploaded payload does to the machine. It records all the things that changed in the operating system, changed in the registry, changed on the disk. It records any network traffic or packet captures that were made. So it's like a, a, it's a really cool test bed for doing forensics. And one of the neat things about this is that um, the community that is taking advantage of these samples um, tags 
they put tags on type on top of the samples to know like what is the sample considered. So if you go into that list and you sign in with your account, um, you'll see that there are tags for ransomware. Um, and so like the cool thing to do is then be like, oh, this is interesting. Like you can look at all the different strains of ransomware that they have available and you can kind of study the difference in how these different strains behave on the box and what they're doing on your network and so forth. So this is my internal research data point for seeing like, okay, is ransomware shifting at all in its intent? Meaning now we're talking about it doing more than just encrypting stuff and making you pay the pay the fine, right? Um, so this is a great place to monitor that. It is really a very cool, like you don't have to have a lot of experience with manipulating these data sets. You can really just kind of click through them, browse in, and you'll see a lot of cool stuff. So like in the summary, it, it has an incidents response section that talks about what is the risk assessment. So like, I'm just going to read one for one of the ransomwares. Um, the risk assessment is remote access. It contains the ability to listen for incoming connections. It is ransomware detected indicator that files ransomware. The spyware accesses potentially sensitive information from local browsers, et cetera, et cetera. It gets your fingerprint. It gets cryptographic information about your machine. It opens your volume point manager. So it kind of, it tells you what all the behaviors are that it's observing about this. And when it actually runs it on the box, it collects a bunch of very, very specific data on how the box was changed. And that kind of informs what the threat analysis is at the top. So like if, if you see a message in the um, risk assessment that says, um, read the active computer name and read the cryptographic machine GUI, then you know that number one, it's reading through basically to try and get your Windows credentials so that it can host itself on your local area network to then try and propagate further. Um, so it's really cool. You can see stack traces. You can see what IP addresses it contacts. You can see how the malware gets into the box. So you can study like where are the attackers trying to distribute the payloads from? Um, so a lot of really cool stuff here. I think if anyone is actually interested in analyzing ransomware beyond the like high level news stories and storylines and like trying to see trends ahead of where people are talking about, um, this is a really cool way where anyone average guy or maybe somewhat technically inclined can kind of go on this website and play around. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd say the average guy. <laughs> well, I, I mean, yeah, like obviously like downloading the data set, I, sh I should put that out there now. Like, yes, you can go and download the raw data set. So like you make sure if you're going to actually download the raw payload that led to this analysis, you're not, you're in a sandbox and doing smart, healthy things, right? I should have put that disclaimer at the beginning. Don't just go downloading and clicking the original executables. Um, but one of the really cool things is like you can download the PCAP files for any of these and you can open it up in a tool called Wireshark, which is a really common uh, network tool that's used to kind of like analyze what's actually going on in the wire. So you can study the PCAP files safely. It doesn't require any kind of special sandbox to look at the data inside the PCAP file because the PCAP file is is not executable. It's just kind of showing you the history of what went on over the network. So that's also another really interesting and informative data point for seeing what actually happened when this malware ran. So uh, again, I kind of spot check this type of data to test my assertions on whether or not ransomware is changing in its behavior intent. Um, I kind of have this philosophy that we can't call it ransomware if the inherent properties of what ransomware does changes. Meaning like in my, in my viewpoint, we have defined ransomware as having these minimal functions. Like it has to be able to encrypt files on your computer. It has to be able to set up a payment gateway. Like if the virus no longer has those minimal viable characteristics, we can't call it ransomware. We have to call it something else or categorize it in some different shape or form. Um, so if it's destructive in nature, in other words, if it just if it just encrypts them or makes them unavailable or wipes them out, but there's no payment gateway associated with it, no way for the user to pay for this, what you're saying, that's not really ransomware. Right. It's not really ransomware so much as like, I don't know, community vandalism. Uh, yeah. It's just like... Well, it's the old school viruses, right? That's Those are the ones we used to laugh about, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that's really very much kind of the crux of, of how I kind of define and track. Cause like, again, this term came up, so we have to assess like, is this a valid term? And unlike a lot of things that I say like, oh, that's great job on your buzzword. Like this is actually pretty accurate for what it does. Like when you, when you line it up to the characteristics and the data that we observe, it's a very appropriate term. Um, so I, I think this is like one of the cases where we actually had a level of specificity in what we meant when we tried to describe this ransomware and this behavior. And maybe it's not a coincidence that the average guy really understands a lot better like ransomware over just like an ordinary virus because it has those well-defined parameters. So I think going forward as like a security best practice for the industry, if we get really good at coming up with um, specific categorizations of like the top level threats, I think the average guy will be able to much more easily digest that and take preventative action ahead of time. Christian, it seems like it's pretty easy to come up with a variation of this now and then relaunch it. It seemed like a year or two ago when these really first started coming out, you know, they were kind of mom and pops, like people were getting these things. And now we're seeing a lot more attacks at the corporate level. Have they realized, I mean, from a cost-effective standpoint, have they realized, hey, it's better to hit bigger targets and this is this works for bigger targets? Um, yeah. Is that is that what's going on? I honestly think, one, that like, yes, they're very well aware of this too. I think there's people who are probably experimenting with like, oh, am I going to do better with individuals versus whoever? But like, if I'm, if I'm someone designing malware, like I want it to go to as many boxes as possible. So like, yes, a lot of the big headliners that like, what is the number one victim of ransomware in my book? Healthcare. Without a doubt, hospitals have been dogged with ransomware more than most other like public entities and institutions. And when you look at how the ransomware gets deployed in those healthcare networks, it's really phishing, phishing, phishing. Yeah, there's some also some really bad healthcare networks in terms of security. And that will delve us into a very different area. Um, but, you know, aside from that, the phishing is kind of a very popular way for them to target specific organizations and ensure that the the payload is going to be distributed to something that will have a high yield profit. Now, there's a bit more of a betting game or I guess a risk calculation that takes place when you do that, right? Um, how do you know if you go through all this effort of setting up social engineering to encrypt a, a hospital that they're actually going to pay the ransom? Um, I think what some hospitals have found is like their backups were not adequate. There were a lot of things that like they had to seriously weigh paying millions of dollars because it was data that they needed to run their hospital. Um, so that is like a very, it's like one of those things where it's like if the executive or if the heads of that organization decide like they need to respond to it by getting their data back and paying the freight, um, then yeah, that's a huge win. But like, from an attacker standpoint, they're probably trying to do both, to be honest. They're just trying to spread it as wide, to as wide of an audience as possible. And then while that machine is running, they're picking their top targets that they think they can run a successful social engineering campaign in to get the big payout. Um, and I think that probably is not unheard of in terms of like the number of people doing that. But you're absolutely right to an earlier point too, which is that like a year ago, there were maybe one or two major strains of ransomware. It was still when things are kind of new. Now people are almost kind of working from common code and common ground to build new slight variations on a theme. And so one of the really interesting forensics questions is whether or not those slight variations are picked up by antivirus um, signature detection and the defense mechanisms the average guy has on their machine, or if those slight variations are enough to pass right through and actually hose the box. Um, I think even if even in today's um, Petya ransomware outbreak going global, um, there's a couple interesting data points. Number one, um, this particular strain 
is spreading using the vulnerability in Windows that was already disclosed and patched in March of 2017. So the vector in which the payload was delivered didn't change. So to me, this kind of inherently says that um, like if you were vulnerable to some of the, if you were vulnerable to Petya as of today, like you were probably also a target for some of the other ones that have come out, right? Because you're the, the vector in which this code is getting onto the box is pretty much the same thing, right? Um, the, the second big point is that, um, and this goes to the point on like, who do you target and how do you pick your targets? Um, it was reported today in TechCrunch that um, today's attack has only made about 7,500 so far. And that was as of like five hours ago, right? So at like 5 p.m. Eastern on June 27th, that you know, big, big headliner news of ransomware had only made 7,500. So that to me says the volume uh, that actually that says a couple things. Number one, um, even though the attack was widespread, it tells me a lot of people patched their boxes back in, back in March, 2017. Um, and it further kind of tells me that, um, yeah, the, so, and, and this is another cool thing about tracking ransomware is that you can look up the Bitcoin address that the ransomware is telling you to pay it to, and you can see how much money has gone in or out of that Bitcoin address. So um, it was reported that only 29 payments had been basically collected. And um, you know, it's actually, it's steep in the sense that when you think about um, 29 payments, 3.15 Bitcoins, like Bitcoin uh, one Bitcoin is um, many hundreds of dollars, right? So if you do get start to rack up victims and you're like charging one Bitcoin, yeah, that's like pretty expensive in terms of American dollars or the pound or what what have you. So it's like, to me though, even among the people that were infected, if only 29 have bought in so far, um, I think that's pretty telling because this several months ago, was making cash a lot faster. And so I, I kind of wonder if this is more of like a, they, they tried to spin off the vulnerability in March and they're, they're getting a smaller audience or if, um, you know, they're just waiting for the next big thing to come along. Like, honestly, it only takes one bad click in someone's corporate network where they haven't properly patched their boxes or they think they patched their boxes, but they missed one um, to have this turn into a multi-million dollar affair again, right? Um, so I think in terms of consumer damage, we're seeing maybe a lot of people got infected, but not a lot of people have paid. That's an interesting data point for me. Um, we're also seeing that a lot of people are doing their updates, which is kind of good. And... Uh, one of the things that's interesting too is when you compare how the average guy sees it to the technologist, I think a lot of people who are power users of the Windows operating system um, were very reactive to Windows 10 doing automatic update patching without asking you, right? Because like all of us, we are excellent at procrastination, right? It's like one of the best human characteristics and best psychological complexes that the human psyche has developed is procrastination where you can justify pretty much anything based on data points that might not even be related, right? And so um, without turning this too much into a psychology podcast, the kind of reality that I think Microsoft came to is we can eliminate a lot of the need to drive campaigns, worry about these large scale security events if we are auto patching our boxes and taking the human psychology element out of it and leaving the only people who don't get auto patched to those large scale corporations who are doing that automatic patch management and they have their own dedicated team kind of handling that, right? So when we look at, you know, like Windows 7 users, probably a big target of this type of attack, right? Windows 10, probably not that much. They're probably, you know, if Windows 10's kernel was impacted by this, um, you know, 
90 plus percent of home users are going to have already been auto patched several months ago. Like that's a big deal. We couldn't say that several years ago, right? With Windows 7 or Windows 8, like we were we were up to user education and Microsoft just kind of took that away from people. And as much as that enrages power users and even makes people like me feel like, oh, I wouldn't want that. But for the good of computing large scale, like it was a smart move when you think about it. Like, yes, that does not take away any of my criticism about the privacy data and other aspects of what that operating system is doing. But if it was one thing they got right, it was probably the automatic patching. Um, so it's interesting because <clears throat> I was around in the 70s when seatbelts really became kind of mandatory, right? I mean, in 60s and 50s before that, it was kind of optional. I remember my dad saying, Oh, I gonna wear no goddamn seatbelt. You know, he would say that to me all the time, you know, oh, whatever, I can do whatever I want. And yet today, we never question. I mean, I, I cannot tell you a person who, who doesn't get in a car, puts their seatbelt on before right. they drive away. Um, and it's not even an argument and an issue. I wonder if we're going to, if we're moving that direction when we think about patching and kind of letting it, you know, in, in Windows 10 isn't the first time Microsoft's tried this. I mean, sure. they tried this back in the XP days when they had all kinds of real security issues and blew a couple patches and blew everybody's confidence that right. they could actually do this, right? If you remember back in those days, I think they're getting a new chance and they're, I think they're actually having a benefit. They want everybody on Windows 10, but they've had some benefits of a slow roll into Windows 10 by mm -hmm. allowing them to practice this auto update stuff without the whole population being on it. So it's interesting. I think Christian, there'll be a, a generation 10 years, 15 years from now, that doesn't even know. Of course, it updates automatically. Yeah. Why would I even say, yeah. anything, you know? I, I think the other thing, too, is um, Windows 10 is so much just inherently faster in terms of the kernel and the operating system and the types of devices that it's on. Like, the bad rap for updates was always that it made your computer slow and it took forever to reboot, right? And, like, they also kind of took that away. So some of the user pain there definitely has been reduced to a degree that probably made them able to roll it out in the way that they did. So, you know, I, I think that part is really good and is a positive for the operating system. I don't like the fact that they can automatically push in updates that collect more metrics about me as a user and my user preferences, but like that's a trade-off, right? So. Yeah, no, right on to security, convenience. And in this case, it's both, right? I mean, we, right. we need that security convenience to make sure, because you're right, we're not going to do it ourselves uh, oftentimes, and uh, we're going to forget. What well, It has been interesting to see Microsoft's response to Windows XP in this, and that they have definitely gone above and beyond their support mm -hmm. window to say, nope, we're going to patch them. And so you get a sense that, I, that that the window may be closing on this exploit, especially the more that happens, more people, I, I got to, I, I have to finally patch these boxes, right? Right. Where I think the 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 attack window was so much smaller, maybe this this one today, yep. because a wanna cry where everybody you know okay we got to patch them, don't you think? Yeah, no, I agree, and I, I think that as that window starts to really dwindle, you'll start to see whatever the next iteration of ransomware is, it's probably going to be based on an entirely new um, exploitation path because they're starting to get smaller and smaller in a number of boxes. This impacts. Yeah, but I think that uh, says, let me just ask you your opinion on this. Drashness says he thinks that XP update was a mistake. You're the security guy. Microsoft's doing the right thing for the security community. The wrong thing for trying to get customers to migrate to more sure. secure, right? Any thoughts, Christian, where do you land on that right thing, not the right thing? I think if you're a software manager at Microsoft, you're probably thinking, I want to protect the brand of Microsoft. So, you know, if you have stubborn Windows XP holdouts, like, yes, it doesn't encourage the right behavior of get the hell off Windows XP and use a real operating system. But at the same token, um, there's a corporate responsibility aspect that's seen when Microsoft kind of, you know, shows up to the big boy table and says, yes, we obviously are under no obligations to do this, but we did it anyway, right? That that to me shows that they like that's a that's a branding win for them in the sense that they are trying to save face on the fact that they had a major vulnerability in their platform right so i think there's a little bit 
more of a um, kind of corporate responsibility element to that. Not so much. I don't think their first priority in doing that was thinking about driving people off Windows XP. Like we've been driving people off Windows XP for north of 10 years now. And if they're still on XP, then like, I don't think this one particular incident is going to be the thing that convinces them to move off. So I think for Microsoft, if you're, if you're a software development manager and you're the team responsible for that patch or that vulnerability, like you're looking at that as saying, you know what, it matters much more that we correct the image of this fatal flaw than whether or not we have, you know, a 1% less uh, adoption rate of XP by the next month. I just don't think it was as high a priority. Um, but I definitely do agree that all those caveats aside, it's it's certainly a way to encourage those holdouts to kind of, you know, hang around and continue to feel like, oh, if it's really, really that bad, they'll come and rescue me. Um, but if that's your mindset, you don't get computers already. So like, there's not much we can do for you. <laughs> yeah. I don't think any of them were like, see, I told you they would patch them. I don't think, yeah. any, I don't think anybody was thinking, yeah, I, you know, there were money changing hands because there had been bets. I, I really don't, hope uh, not. Yeah. I really hope not. And, and so like, w- you know, we talked about corporate responsibility. I think that's important. Another really interesting um, corporate responsibility dilemma that comes into talking about ransomware is apparently uh, it was recently reported that a ransomware victim was unable to pay their ransom because the email provider that hosted the attacker's inbox decided to shut it down. So they figured out where the attacker's email was because it's basically advertised in the malware when you want to pay up and the provider shut down that box. So like it raises this really interesting question of like, if it were any other type of attacker or malware abuser um, abusing a system like that, like corporate providers would shut that inbox off without like thinking for two seconds. But now it's like, if you shutting off that box is the difference between someone getting their data back or someone being stuck in this situation, what do you do? Do you as the provider let that box run in some kind of state or do you um, delete it anyway and say, sorry, too bad? Um, And so like for me, I, I thought this was really interesting, especially when we talk about like corporate responsibility, like there is a technical correct thing to do like what does your what does your field guide say and then there's like a what is the right thing to do by the customer here right there's like two balancing priorities and so uh i really do think that this is an amazing um dilemma of like a new type of malware like i just this is very fascinating to me and i think what we'll find is that Companies might seriously have to come up, like especially email providers, might have to come up with better ways of running accounts that block the user who owns the account from using it anymore, but allows the account to exist for a period of time in some kind of degraded state so that people can dig themselves out if they want to pay a ransomware, for example. And like, it's not always going to be ransomware we're talking about, but I feel like there are going to be companies that have to make these decisions between what does our field manual say versus what is it right to do by the customer at this point. Um, and so the fact that this is so directly tied to a ransomware example, I think is really uh, pretty cool. Yeah. If this was a, if this was a person, right. And the, so someone had been kidnapped being held for ransom and they're making a phone call to arrange for the money and the phone, the phone company goes, We've tracked, we've traced it back. Exactly. We're now cutting the phone line. Yeah. You can no longer have communication with them. I mean, people would, yeah. they would get a freak out, right? Right. And, uh, it's like, hey, no, no, there's somebody's life at stake. Like, we need that. So it is an interesting dilemma for these providers. And, and you're right. There is no, no question the right thing to do is shut off. You know, hey, they're using these services for illegal activities we should shut them well should we you know type it is a serious dilemma yep no i agree uh right on not sure there's a smart way around that there it seems to me christian then so now that this ransomware is is getting to be a big deal that somebody ought to get together 
and kind of <laughs> some minds ought to start talking about this. Anything like that going on? I mean, wh- what are we hearing out there? Who, who's starting to think about this from a collective standpoint? From a policy standpoint or a technology standpoint? Let's say both. Yeah, because yeah. I don't, hey, right now they're arguing about healthcare. I don't hear anybody in Congress, at least in the United States, in fact, they're trying to strip away some of those rules as opposed to put them in. So to me, it seems like at least our government, this is the last thing on their mind. Nobody has said, at least from what I'm hearing, in our government, I'm not hearing a lot of, I'm hearing a lot of nothing. But yeah. it, are there things going on outside of outside of the government? There are certainly a lot of um, like tech policy incubators and policy arms that work even with things like startups and large corporations that are looking at these types of things, I think a lot of the best practice for dealing with these types of scenarios comes from like your big fortune 500 tech companies that are basically, they're supposed to be at the forefront of quote, setting a good example. So when one company does one thing, all the other ones kind of look suspiciously at like, Oh, is that just the latest thing that they're doing or is this, you know, a practice that really is smart to adopt uh, community wide. And so I think you kind of have both, right? You have the large scale companies that are either implementing technical fixes and then also driving policy around it. Um, And then there are also the smaller groups that are focused more on the policy aspects of how do we manage and get better at doing cybersecurity? I think, our government and um, net just governments in general have a very, um, the definitions of which cybersecurity fall under are interpreted one way, but implemented another way. For example, like the average guy is looking at like, do my senators or do my representatives in Congress care about ransomware attacks? And like the answer is there's probably only four or 5% at best of people in Congress that really actually know what that means when you say I've been infected by XYZ and it's doing this to my computer, right? They might be able to read the headlines like everyone else, but do they really understand any type of policy or legal implications around what you just told them? No, absolutely not. Um, that's just kind of an honest assessment, right? A lot of the people we have um, in those positions don't have a background in technology. They're not degrees in computer science, right? Yeah. So, and as, as soon as I said that, I thought, and I put this in the chat room, do we really do we really want it being talked about by them at that level? Is that really the right place for this well, discussion to go on? This is one of the reasons why we have um, testimonies in Congress and why we invite people who are experts from the industry to speak and basically be people who translate the technical difficulty and and simmer it down into the policy positions that actually bring about legislation, right? Like there has to be a translation mechanism of talking about what's going on in the technology and, you know, synthesize away the digital what's left. Um, What is the decision that we need to make from a policy perspective? And like, it's a very broad statement to say our government isn't aware of this because certainly there are a lot of agencies that literally do this every single day that the average guy isn't paying attention to, but it doesn't mean it's not happening. For example, NIST, they are constantly making standards that try and define the policies around how cybersecurity should be enacted, right? And if you're following NIST standards, um, which has actually been something that has been promoted a lot in recent months in terms of enhanced cybersecurity prioritization, there's a lot of policy and framework that comes out of that. And like most people in our country look at our senators and our representatives and say, they have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to things like ransomware. Right. But they are pushing and promoting like the NIST standards and making it a priority or making an executive order that you have to follow these types of things. Those are the policy driven decisions that can change the behavior around how cybersecurity impacts the average consumer. Right. So like, for example, if consumers were forced to follow NIST standards in any remote regard to companies, like 
much smaller attack surface we'd be talking about, right? So like, that's just a common example. Like there's a lot of people having these conversations every single day. It's just how those policies get translated into actual actionable um, movement among like everyday people is a really interesting and hard problem to solve. No, for sure. It, it's a difficult, just, just thinking about it, you're, you know, who do you want involved and how do you want to make the decisions and where does this go? And certainly, you know, when we think about, you know, there may be even state sponsored activity going on. Mm-hmm. And what are the ramifications of that? As we think about the wanna cry, uh, no, no allegations, or maybe there have been, but there, there have been some cries of state sponsored activity there. So it gets a little stickier. It's a, it's a little harder than just going after a criminal who's robbed a bank. Sure. The, these, these get really, really complicated. Well, and that's one of the reasons why it is so hard to write legislation around cybersecurity because it's so hard to do attribution, right? Um, attribution in cybersecurity is going to be one of the hardest challenges over the next decade. Um, and I think we also see that like there are other types of, cybersecurity related policy decisions that make a huge impact. Like Drashna brings up net neutrality, which is like a great example of people have a furious technical debate about what it means to do net neutrality from a technical standpoint. Then that got synthesized down into like, what are the policy implications of net neutrality? And then people debated about it. Right. So like there's that kind of three-step process. That's a very broad overture of what actually goes on. Um, But there are a lot of cases where it's like you first have to remove it. It's it's very strange because we are, and maybe it's a broken process, right? Because if we're removing some of our policy decisions from the like specific technicalities that got us to this point, it might obscure the reason why we're doing something in the first place. Um, but in the case of like what you're talking about with like, um, like someone from China writes a virus and it's now on my computer. How is my government going to protect me from that? Um, that's a very hard issue, right? How do I attribute that it really was someone from China or that it wasn't just someone VPNed into a server in China who's really sitting at, you know, at the patio across the street, right? Like it could be the case. Um, so until attribution gets better, it makes it very much harder for them to enforce penalties in a legal manner. Yeah. Well, we're crossing borders too, which makes it even more complicated, right? Right. That doesn't mean it doesn't make it harder or that doesn't mean it's not possible to still drive legislation around protecting consumers and particularly protecting them from operating or using devices that are inherently unsafe or insecure or follow bad practice. And I think we could probably do a lot around that area it, over the next several years in lieu of not really having the attribution piece figured out. Um, and I, you know, I think that would go a long way um, before even looking at the attribution problem. Yeah. I always wonder if Wozniak, you know, in the old days in the seventies when he was phone freaking, you know, they create, he created a little squawk box that you could put on the phone that would mimic the sounds of the PBX device and it would allow him to dial and go into other countries in a sense uh, in, in creating this kind of this hack, right. That allowed that to those kinds of things to go on. It was to make phone calls today. We wouldn't think of that as just being that big of a deal, but now it's gone full. I mean, we have just, it's full scale. And I, I think even 10 years ago, we didn't realize the, as we think about this, this wanna cry, we didn't think about the geopolitical ramifications of it that yes, it's attacking uh, you know, yes, it's encrypting files, and yes, it's attacking countries cross-border. Is that an act, or could it be an act of war or aggression? And how is that being handled? And how is that underpinning the financial institutions of these countries and such? Today's is is, U- is Ukraine based, and and had a lot of implication in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you just you kind of, of course, we know what's going on there as well, and. You, it just adds a whole bunch of really complex political issues to it, not just the $300 that you're paying to get your files back. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Anything else on that, Christian? We've been going a while on that one, but anything else you want to add? 
No, I think that's a summary. Like I, I expect most people who are listening at this point have already read or heard about, you know, Petya and the specific news of the day. So hopefully this provides kind of a lot of context around that, that people may not be talking about that I think is important to have when you talk about, you know, any, any type of ransomware or larger scale thematic um, virus that, that is of popularity in, in uh, news reporting. Yeah. Also today, or recently, I think this is actually today, Google's kind of hammered with a $2.7 billion fine by the EU. You know, this happened to Microsoft a decade ago, and it was was gigantic news. Today, this kind of sneaks under the wire a little bit. Like, oh, yeah, by the way, $2.7 billion in fines by the EU. You want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, this is a huge deal. So... um really this is one of the first major google cases that actually came to a verdict and i mean i think the next biggest penalty in terms of um related types of um antitrust probes and resolutions like so this is the first antitrust related probe from by the european union that resulted in a decision by the eu um but the big big ticket item in terms of the, just talking about the numbers, um, Intel was fined 1.06 billion for um, basically discouraging PC makers from using other chips. Okay, fine. But that was the previously, that was the biggest um, settlement by the EU for this type of technical issue. Google has dwarfed that number by basically being over twice as large as the amount in terms of the settlement. Um, that's crazy, right? Um, 2.42 billion euros in comparison to 1.06 for the next uh, runner up. Um, so that's that's the first thing. Um, and that just shows kind of the amazing kind of staggering decision that this was. And I'm sure it will almost immediately be appealed by Google's legal team. Like they're not going to let that sit. Um, The second one is this really gets into a lot of interesting issues on data rights, again, which like EU data sovereignty laws, it's a big deal there. They see data and how data affects customers very differently from most other uh, countries. Um, It gets into a lot of sticky issues around how do computer systems influence consumers to make certain purchases. So like one of the big things that regulators accused Google of doing was unfavor, uh, unfairly stacking shopping ads amongst like top competitors and then punishing other people trying to compete in that market by putting them lower on the page. And like, this is a really interesting problem because it's like, the, the main argument that they made was that Google hurts competing shopping sites by demoting them in search results, sometimes after the first page, causing them to lose traffic. But it's like, if you only have a finite amount of space on a page to display something, at what point is it, um, like, what is the difference between unfairly discriminating and lowering or artificially placing someone in a higher place versus literally these are the top results, can't physically show them on this page because there's not enough space. And I haven't read in in the I haven't read the legal arguments in detail enough to understand how they came to that decision. But like that's certainly one of the first things that I go to is, you know, that's a really sticky issue, right? Because if you're basically ruling that you are stacking competitors against each other by um, basically picking favorites on your front page, like whoa, now we've just made a really big assertion about what search engines aren't and aren't are and aren't allowed to do. Um, the other thing that's big, and, and that's one of the things specific about this case is it involves money, right? So they're specifically focusing on when like I go to type, I want a new pair of shoes. What are going to be the top things that show up that I as a consumer go, ooh, I might want that pair of shoes over another pair. This ruling said nothing about regular Google searches, right? But a lot of times our businesses are driven by how many people are going to our website and Google is one of the number one players in that. So can I now use this type of legal discourse to suggest that 
merely losing traffic on my website is the same profit damage as um, people specifically shopping for something. Like this opens up a whole can of worms that I just think has never been considered before. And like people are gonna have to do some soul searching on this because number one, it's gonna be appealed. Number two, I think that uh, the EU is really out into some uncharted territories. Like the US has not come anywhere close to tackling this type of problem. Yes, we have done a lot with antitrust. Yes, we've done a lot with large corporations basically competing and stacking different um, types of consumer choices against one another. Um, or even getting to the point where we're filtering your content, we're, we're preferring certain data over others. This gets into a lot of the privacy things that we talk on the show a lot, but never have I quite seen something like this. So for me, this was the, the, the data is the new bacon. This was a big data moment for me today, seeing like, A, um, now we're actually swimming in this territory that's a pretty big deal, I think, for a lot of people to figure out where this is actually going to go. Um, and number two, how are different countries going to react to this particular instance? Like, is this going to be a, is this going to be something that translates to the United States's legal understanding of an antitrust, or is this only going to be something that is seen as an EU type issue? Um, but regardless, technology companies don't get the privilege of choosing which laws they do and don't get to follow. They have to be globally compliant. It's probably one of the biggest headaches I can imagine any company having to deal with is following all the different laws about the very same subject matter across different countries. And how do you build a product that is compliant with all of those different policy decisions unless you are basically curtailing and making specific versions of your product and of your data for those countries. So I think this raised a lot of questions today. Yeah. Well, it's big news and I, it, hopefully it won't go away fast. I mean, cause I think there's some questions that need to be answered uh, by this and it will set some legal precedents. I mean, you are talking about Google as an organization that has just, I mean, they, they lose more money just thinking about it each day than they, I mean, they make tons and so they've got lawyers for their lawyers for their lawyers. And it just could be interesting where this goes. Yeah. And I think the other thing too is like, this is another great example of like, how is tech policy and law going to shape and influence these types of decisions, right? Because I think the reason why we see these types of antitrust cases is like, they are building a case based on some knowns in legal history, but a lot of this, they're writing like brand new out of the playbook. Like there really just is not much foundation. So it's, I think, going to take a lot of different court cases to establish any kind of precedent that's going to allow for this to normalize out a little bit. And I don't see that happening anytime soon because the pace at which the technology is moving is so much faster than most other areas of that law regulates, like even healthcare, healthcare, like most people think healthcare moves super fast, which don't get me wrong, it does. But the types of things that regulate healthcare is like a much more static known input and output than like there's much more rigorous parameters for debate with healthcare because you know what is being debated. Whereas I think with some of these cases, you're building a certain set of facts, you're going in there based on that. But after that, you're doing a lot of extrapolation to try and get to the case that you're going to make. And so I think it's going to take a compilation of those extrapolations to actually get to a point where we are even remotely caught up with the speed at which this technology is moving. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't disagree. We've, we've got a lot of work to do and it will set precedent. I mean, I think this is what we're going to see. And I think it's, it's interesting that the EU continues to be the one who really is aggressive in this, I, I, they're probably the single most aggressive governmental organization, especially in the area of privacy. Um, and of course, Germany is the is probably the most. Mm, I don't, you know, they're very aggressive in their data privacy concerns mm -hmm. and, and, and what you can and can't do with them. And so they're leading the way on that. And I'm not sure. I think sometimes as Americans, we feel like that's too suppressive or that's too unreasonable. But then we come up against things like this, and you kind of go, oh, "Is it?" You know, I don't know. And uh, and certainly I think those are opinions or those are policies that are going to be formed at the global perspective. And this may be 
the really first time we see these global policies go into effect that have teeth. Because today, w w the United States can say something. It doesn't mean anything in China, you know, or right. Russia or anywhere. The EU is trying to have that reach. I mean, they're trying. <laughs> I don't think they're quite getting there yet. They are trying to have that, that global reach in some of the things that they're doing, at least by saying, hey, in the EU, it's going to be this way. Um, so it'll, it will be interesting uh, where that goes. Christian, when we come back, the next time we come back, I want you to think about this for me. So sure. I've been thinking a lot about security appliances. And most recently, Bitdefender uh, had a version one come out last year, $200 box that gets put in your network. Mm -hmm. our, our audience here, they're big PF Sense or, or uh, Drashna puts your flavor in there. I forget. Uh, he's going to kill me for not. What are the other, what are the other router varieties that are, the, if you're going to home grow your, come on. Um, oh gosh. Any number of them. Uh, uh, Sophos. Is that, is that no. Anyways, no. it doesn't matter. Uh, we have these security companies now starting yeah. trying to create. Is, these, is it? Did I get it right? Okay, good. Yeah. Trying to get it right. I'm a PF Sense guy, and even then, now I'm just using a Google. I'm using their On Hub, which hasn't been as updated as much as I was hoping it would. It would be, but um, maybe when we come back, when we think about is, are we at a point where the average home, because there's so many connected devices, is the solution a box of some kind and not a PF Sense? box where somebody's got to do some stuff to make it work. I'm talking about something they buy at Office Max or Home Depot. They can mm -hmm. install in their house, mm -hmm. put it in between the internet and themselves and protect mm -hmm. themselves. So if I throw that yeah. out to the next show, can, can we talk about that? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a really interesting thing, especially because it's like, what do we think corporations are doing, right? They're they're buying lots of shiny appliances between the World Wide Web and their inside computers. And, and we actually have a lot of data points on how effective that's been for them. So now we can try and translate that to what it would mean for the average guy. So yeah, let's plan for that. For yeah, we'll week. just we'll just plan for it. I, I got uh, started looking at, Bit, at Bitdefender's box. They mm -hmm. Um, their version one, they offered to me for like 60 bucks and it gave me unlimited seats of their antivirus software. Wow. And I thought that by itself might be worth it. And it's their total security software. Right. They're, they're top of the line for 60 bucks. I still may pull the trigger on that, but it got me thinking. Then I started doing some research and now they have a V2 that they announced at CES, mm -hmm. which in uh, Tom's hardware did a review of it and seemed to think, okay, it's, V2 is coming around to what they promised in V1. And I'm just wondering if it's such a complex problem, can we create a box that the consumer can put in, in between them and actually understand and actually stop some things, right? Um, sure. You know, OpenDNS was that, could have been that kind of virtual appliance. It, it's, uh, I think it's owned by Cisco or one of those companies owns it now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, nobody's... Nobody's thinking about that, you know, or does it get built into a router? So anyways, we'll talk about that on the, awesome. next, on the next time. Christian, anything? Oh, we got to catch up. Give us a quick two-minute version of how your year ended, your academic year ended, and then whatever you want to, wherever sure. you're at today, whatever you want to share. I am uh, graduated and out of the University of Maryland, which is a great feeling. So I have a degree in computer science and a minor in cybersecurity. I think technically it's actually going to be, I'm waiting for my diploma, but uh, I think technically it will be written as advanced cybersecurity. So I'm waiting for someone to explain to me what the difference between cybersecurity and advanced cybersecurity is, but when I know, you'll know. Um, so I'm very happy to be done with that. Uh, it's been a great four years at Maryland and um, it's a credential that I think I, I'm going to be glad that I took the time to really drill that down and make the most of what's been a great four years at Maryland. Um, I am now happily humbling, humming along in the tech industry and still being a, a DC metro area uh, individual. Um, so I'm enjoying kind of being in the area and still working on really fun technology problems. Uh, they don't seem to get any easier or come any slower, uh, but I've had a lot of fun um, since getting out of school, being able to now pour pretty much as many hours in a week as I want on some of the coolest technology problems that are out there. Um, it's really fun working for um, a cloud computing company because there's just so much that 
there is to learn and so much that you can contribute in an environment like that. And you're constantly surrounded by really wicked smart people. And so that's something that uh, I felt like I had that at Maryland. I felt like I was always surrounded by really smart people in the honors college and always really motivated people. And now to be in a workplace environment that has that on steroids, is just awesome. Um, so I'm really enjoying that. Really cool. And we'll, uh, we'll try and get a more, um, regular cyber frontiers going. I That's think there's, right. pl- there's plenty to talk about. There's plenty to talk about. As you can see, we already, uh, exceeded our buffer for the day and probably got through half of our list. So yeah, yeah, I know there's, there's plenty out there to talk about. So we'll, we'll continue, continue to watch me on Twitter at Jake Collison. We'll announce these as we go along. We're going to try and do it last week. We actually had a tornado through go through here, Bellevue, which almost never happens. I, yeah, I just, I've been living here 17 years, and we've never had any kind of weather like that. And and so put the power out. We had it back by Tuesday morning, but I was so tired, Christian. When you when you lose power, dude, it is it's so awesome. life disrupting. Yeah, yeah, it's just life disrupting. And so I pinged you, and I was like, I, like, can we can we just not? <laughs> I'm not up to a full show. And uh, and you were gracious enough to say, and then even tonight we uh, we were able to sneak it in. So thanks for uh, thanks for coming back on. Yeah, awesome. Remind everybody, uh, of course, uh, surf, uh, uh, Cyber Frontiers, Home Gadget Geeks, both powered by Maple Grove Partners. Don't forget about that. Get secure, secure, reliable, high speed hosting for people that you know and you trust. And of course, uh, great job, Christian. On if you've been out, if you haven't been out to the Average Guy TV, just pop out there. It's pretty fast. I'm just gonna say, pretty fast. And uh, Christian, make sure it's done that way. Plans start as inexpensive as $10 a month. We are trying to build this as kind of community hosting. And so if you've got a project that you want to do, Christian's uh, sweet spot really is in WordPress. And so uh, if you got a project that you want to do and you're willing to kind of jump in with us from a community standpoint, I'd love to have you as partners in that. Head out to maplegrovepartners.com and everything is out there. And if you sign up, guess who you'll get to help you set things up? Yeah. Okay. We, <laughs> we want to welcome, or we always welcome your comments uh, or questions uh, on anything you got to it. You can send me an email, Jim at the average guy.tv. Christian, is your Christian at the average guy? Yeah. Or is that still working? Yep. I always that, get email there. So. You get email there. So if you want to email Christian, Christian at the average guy.tv, you can, um, you can get that. We haven't said that in a long time. I, I think know. while you're in school, I just kind of let that go because I knew you were super busy, but uh, good to know that it's still working. So yep. Hey, if you enjoyed this, we'd ask that you share it. Thanks to everybody who came out tonight. Ken, Drashna, other Jim, guest 268, who's Gary. And Ken, we want to, and Brian was out there as well. We want to appreciate you guys for coming out tonight. With that, we'll say goodnight, everybody. Good night.